I'm Shannon Green, and you're listening to On Extremism, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the causes, manifestations, and responses to one of the most important issues of our time. In this series, we'll talk to top experts, policymakers, and practitioners to understand how we can better counter violent extremism around the world. Our podcast is made possible by the CSIS Commission on Countering Violent Extremism, chaired by former British Prime Minister Tony Blair and former U.S. Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta. For more information on the commission, please visit www.csis.org. I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, Dr. Naif Almutawa, a clinical psychologist, founder of the SOAR Center for Professional Therapy and Assessment in Kuwait, and the creator of The 99, a comic book series featuring Islamic superheroes who embody the 99 attributes of Allah. Globally well-received, The 99 was also recognized by Forbes magazine and President Barack Obama for its innovative, positive portrayal of Islam. Dr. Almutawa also has extensive clinical experience working with former prisoners of war in Kuwait and the survivors of political torture in Bellevue Hospital in New York. Dr. Almutawa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Great. Well, I was hoping we could start just by telling us a bit about what inspired you to create the 99 and sort of what was behind the development of this comic book series. Sure. So I, so I, um, I, I was in New York um, right after 9/11, going to business school. So I, I, I worked at Bellevue with survivors of torture. Worked with, um, you know, people who came out of prisons in Iraq and Syria who had been tortured for all kinds of reasons. And, and because I spoke Arabic, those were the, primarily the people I worked with at Bellevue. And, and one of the stories I kept hearing again and again was the story of people growing up to see their leaders as heroes, only to be tortured by those heroes. And so I thought, you know, gee, this is a really kind of scary uh, portrayal of what a hero is that, that kids in my part of the world are growing up with. And being the father of, you know, almost three kids now, and I actually have six boys at this point, I have six sons, uh, I became very worried about who their role models were going to be. And then, you know, I took a break, 9-11 happened, I went back to business school, and I just had an idea about kind of, you know, reclaiming uh, what... Islam stood for from the extremists, and the, the, I just chose the vehicle of comic books and, and animation to do so. And so, can you tell us a little bit about what those attributes are that you tried to highlight in this series? Sure. So, the United attributes of Allah include things like generosity and mercy and foresight, and, and you know, very positive stuff. But they also include, you know, there's yin and yang. There's also the strong, the powerful, the hegemonist. And so, basically. In the end, it translates to basic human values. Um, uh, but you know, the, so so Muslims believe that God owns those attributes in their in their absolute form. So He's the merciful. He's you know the powerful. Uh, but a lot of them, if not most of them, human beings can also portray according to your interpretation of of Islam. And so I you know I was at the point where you know I was complaining about how our religion was being represented, and, you know, why wouldn't something do about this? And then I was like, well, why aren't you doing something about this? Um, and so I chose that um, primarily because I was just sick and tired of people, people using Allah to kill. You know, they're saying somehow that God, you know, sanctioned it. And I thought the only way to kind of, you know, 
grabbed the carpet out from, from under their legs was, and the only way to kind of reposition Islam was to use, to go back to the same uh, place that they pulled out their negative messaging and tie positive messaging, you know, things like multiculturalism and tolerance, which is all, which is all available in the Quran. And that way they just become an interpretation and not the religion. And, and the hope was, you know, other people would be inspired to do the same. And how was it received? I've heard you say before that initially you really developed it for your own children, but then obviously it had a much broader impact. Can you talk about how it took off and what the reaction was to the 99? Sure. So when I started, it was 2003 when I first had the idea. And, you know, I wrote the first few stories and then I went off raised financing. Um, towards the end of the project, I had raised almost $40 million in financing over three rounds. And, um, you know, I started off as a comic book series, then the theme park launched a few years after that, and then the, t the global animated series came out on television. Now, the reactions were a mixed bag. Uh, most of the people that actually took the time to see the show really enjoyed it. And those that, you know, wanted to judge the book by the cover, um, you know, came up, didn't. And, and one of the things that really kind of politicize the 99 uh, we had just an amazing reaction you know from world leaders and you know wars in the UN and the World Economic Forum really in a highbrow stuff and then President Obama um, you know basically you know called it the most innovative response to his Cairo speech which is and there's a story behind that that I can share but which is an amazing thing for us but what happened is that it opened up you know the gates to the right wing on both your continent and mine and so you know, back home I became an evil Zionist CIA agent who's out to destroy Islam. Uh, and in the U.S., I became, you know, on Twitter, some of the who's who on the right wing referred to me as an evil Arab-American terrorist, to which my reply on Twitter was, I can't believe you called me American. <laughs> call me evil. You know, call me evil, that's subjective, but, I, but I'm not a U.S. citizen. You know, so that became very political at that point. And, uh, and, uh, you know, led to kind of uh, some troubles back home, and, and uh, which which are now sorted out, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, you and others who have been featured on this podcast have talked about the danger when you try to compete with extremists for mind space. Can you talk a little bit more about what happened to you personally, and maybe as we think about expanding these kinds of initiatives, what we can do to help protect the individuals who do this really difficult work? Sure. So, so, so the thing is, like you know, I, I teach at the medical school here in Kuwait. I'm a professor in clinical psychology, and one of the lectures I always give is on the biological basis of behavior. And I end that with you know something from a book called Demonic Males, which is written by two Harvard anthropologists, and they talk about how human males, like chimpanzee males, go to war. You know, chimpanzees will, will hold down members of another tribe and beat them with a stick till they die to take over their territory, right? So we do that too as human beings, as evolved as we are. But the thing is, there's another dimension to us doing that. We do, we, it's not just about you know, a line in the sand that we fight over. We also fight over lines in the air, this intellectual realm of religion. You know, my religion is better than yours, and if I can prove it and I get more people believing in mine, somehow I take over some more space, some more mind space. So it's territory. Mm. So it's basically, you know, it's basically chimpanzee politics. And and so you know when you know people you know when I when I first started this people didn't really pay much attention to me until the show became popular, and then all of a sudden I became a threat, 
uh, it was the same work. I mean, you know, our problem started two years after it was on TV daily. It wasn't even like at the beginning, which was very strange that it happened that way. But somebody decided that this was, you know, getting, uh, you know, getting too popular, uh, which is a nice thing. Um, in, in terms of how to protect, I don't think I, I don't think it's it's you know I think in the end, you know, this is one of those things where you do it because you really believe in it, and you do it until you know. I've been kind of doing stuff like this like 99 for 20 years. It, was, it used to be newspaper articles, and then there were there were uh, books I wrote and illustrated, the one award from UNESCO in 97 about tolerance, and this was the, this is the latest iteration of that. So I, I don't think that, I, I don't think that, I think work like this is a calling for, right? So, I, so and, and I think, you know, either the market takes or it doesn't. And I, I don't think there's any real way to kind of protect it per se. Well, so you mentioned that President Obama had highlighted the 99, and it sounds like that was a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it garnered a lot of attention and publicized these efforts, but then on the other, sort of made you a target for some of this criticism. Can you tell that story a little bit? Sure. Let me tell you sort of how it happened, then tell you kind of the repercussions after. So basically, you know, when 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 uh, on on January 1st, 2009, my fifth son, Rakan, was born, and I got a call from my dad, said, I want you to call him Barack. I said, uh, no, uh, Obama was going to be president in 20 days. And uh, and then another relative called me up and said, uh, I heard you had another child. I said, yes. They said, boy or girl? I said, what do you think? You know, So they said, another boy. Now you have enough boys to liberate Palestine. And I thought, whatever happened to playing basketball? Right? And so I took those two thoughts and I wove them into an op-ed that was published in the Chicago Tribune on Inauguration Day called Barack al-Mutawa, about why I would not call my son Barack. And so because of the paper it was in and because it was Inauguration Day, I'm pretty sure the president saw it. And then that same day, Marvel put out a copy of Spider-Man with uh, Obama on the cover with Peter Parker. And, and, um, and it was a signal to the whole world that President Obama liked comic books. So I had lunch in February with Paul Levitz, who was the head of DC Comics at the time, who was a friend of mine. And I said, Paul, you know, Marvel beat you guys, uh, but I have an idea that can help you sail by, sail, you know, sail by them on, on this issue. He goes, what? And, I, and I, I, you, know, you know, they say you don't know what you're going to get until you ask for it. You know, I said, how about when President Obama reaches out to the Muslim world, which became the speech of, from Cairo four months later, no one knew where or when, we just knew there was something was going to happen at some point. Uh, how about when he does that, the 99 reached back out to Batman and Superman. And I didn't expect him to go for it, but he did. Uh, and six books came out, which sold out, which, you know, which has Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman working with my characters for world peace. And that's what attracted the attention of the president. Now, the repercussions of um, the attention, which I wouldn't trade for anything, to be honest, is one of the, my proudest moments. I mean, I'm not a U.S. citizen, but I'm very, very proud of, 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 of the shout-out. But one of the things that, back home is... What happened, so February 2014, um, uh, sorry, December 31st, let's start, in 2013, so New Year's Eve, there's a big Twitter campaign coming out of the region asking for my trial for the 99, that I had you know, broken laws and been blasphemous and stuff like that. And, and bear in mind, this is against the backdrop of the Arab Spring, where some, you know, and you know, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, so some you know, right-wing groups felt emboldened to kind of take steps like this. And so this happens, and then it dies down. And then in February, a lawyer in Kuwait decides he's going to make it his case. He wants to get popular, you know, by, you know, you know the metaphor that comes to mind. You, guys, you ever watch Beauty and the Beast? Yes. Yeah, you know the, the angry villagers? 
Yes, the mob. This is this is the, yeah, this is the the mob on Twitter. And so so the angry villagers, you know, kind of he wants to be their leader, and so he he tries to sue me. Um, and the government doesn't respond to him, and then so he writes for a fatwa. Now for people. I know you know it's the big F word that people are scared of, but so just so people understand what a fatwa is, a fatwa is the answer to a question posed to a religious sheikh without checking the due diligence of the question. So if you ask the question to the left, you get an answer to the left. You ask it to the right, you get an answer to the right. Okay, and so the question posed to the sheikhs about the 99 came out with an unfavorable review by them, where they called it the work of the devil and it's evil, all that. The thing is, I agree with what the sheikhs said. This is the Grand Mufti of Saudi, and all, all, all seven of them signed the decree against 99. I agree with what they said. The problem is, the information that was given to them was not true. Mm-hmm. And so, but then, he, then this was used to, you know, fan some more flames. And then in June, he gets another fatwa, this time out of Kuwait. Now, bear in mind, the Ministry of Information in Kuwait and Saudi both approved my work. I'm financed by a, 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 an Islamic investment bank out of Saudi. So, you know, I played all my cards right. You know, and yet the mob took over. And so then in, in June, you know, he gets another fatwa out of Kuwait. And then the death threats happen. So thousands of people, are, you know, claiming they're part of Qaeda and ISIS and all this stuff on Twitter. And uh, which culminated into the government actually calling me to go on trial. But it wasn't the government suing me, but their laws allowed for it to happen. I went through it for over a year and came out not guilty in the end. But it was it was a, it was it was stressful in the beginning. Uh, but it was a, the the process. I mean, uh, I know not many of you have probably been sued for blasphemy, and I hope I hope you never uh, go through it. But it, it 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 was pretty professional, if one can say that about a you know <laughs> medieval practice. So one of the things that we're looking at through the CVE commission that CSIS is um, chairing is the different ways that extremism manifests. So of course, everybody's familiar with the attacks, but maybe people are less familiar with the impact that extremists can have on freedom of speech, for example. Can you talk a little bit about um, this issue of the way that sort of extremist ideology or the mob effect can have a chilling effect on freedom of speech and other kind of values and rights that we hold dear? You know, I mean, it's really tough to answer that question. I mean, I think, think, you know, people end up kind of self-censoring if they don't feel, um, if they don't feel like they're protected, Uh, you know, and, and you, and, and, you know, it's 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 a scary situation. So democracy, you know, when we talk about kind of democracy in different places, so democracy in my in my in my understanding is the rule of the majority with the protection of the minority. Mm-hmm. Right. But but what I see kind of in my part of the world that you know the places that espouse democracy is you start from scratch. Every time you know a new kind of way of thinking gets elected to office, you all of a sudden there's no protection for the mi- the new minority now. And so this is kind of what fundamentally is missing. When you have the right wing kind of wanting to come after people, you know, based on skin color or religion or, or what have you. And this happens here too. Not, I mean, it happens here. It happens in the States. It happens everywhere. The difference is you have laws to protect against it in North America. You don't really have them as much here. But just like you have people there that want to get rid of all the Muslims, you have people here who want to get rid of all the Christians and the Jews. I mean, they, these people exist. It has nothing to do with 
their religion has to do with the way their brain is wired you know and, and so you know we can't we can't blame religion for that um but uh, but yeah i mean you know people like that do take over like i you know i you know i you know I, you know some you know people talk about you know for example the, the election now in the states and what what does it mean if trump becomes president i'm not worried about him as president i'm worried about what it means that he actually got voted in based on what he said mm-hmm. that's what worries me he doesn't worry me mm-hmm. you know because there's only so much he can do in power but but if people put him in power with his views that's a little bit scary so I heard you talk at another roundtable about the importance of language and the fact that a lot of people don't know classical Arabic and therefore it gives a few select um, scholars the ability to really interpret sacred text for the large majority of the people. Can you talk about the importance of language and how that relates to the phenomenon of violent extremism and the ability of, you know, certain extremist groups to interpret language in a way that serves their agenda? So let me put it in kind of historical perspective, first from a Western perspective. So for over a thousand years, the language of Christianity was Latin. And as Latin evolves, which which all languages do, um, what happens is that, what happened there is there's something called vulgar Latin, the one the lower classes spoke. This eventually became known as French and Italian and Spanish, but it was only the lower class that spoke that. And what happened century after century is less and less people had control over the scriptures, which is, you know, the Catholic Church, and and basically it became more and more extreme to the point that hot lead was being poured down the throats of Muslims and Jews to get them to convert, you know, because it says it right here, right? And so and so what ha- what what basically broke the grip of the Catholic Church was language. You know, King Henry who wanted the divorce and didn't know how and translated the Bible into English and and created the Church of England and Martin Luther into German, and Europe finally woke up. And, and, and the Catholic Church got defeated because they no longer controlled language and therefore did not control thought. And the common man could now, you know, people who spoke that vulgar Latin could now contribute culturally, whereas before they couldn't. In my part of the world, you know, we, you know, we believe every prophet came to his people with a miracle. The prophet Moses could turn a stick into a snake because the language of the day was magic. But the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, his, his miracle is the language in which the Quran came. So if your miracle is language and language evolves, what do you do? What we did as a culture is we came out with all kinds of rules to keep that language from breathing and moving, came out with all kinds of rules that we, you know, this, of classical Arabic. And so we broke the relationship between how we think and how we write and how we speak. And so kids grow up, 80% of Muslims, for example, today... Uh, Praying a language they don't understand, and so very easy to manipulate to do horrible things. And beyond that, the 20% that are actually Arab, not many of them kind of understand it without need, the need for a middleman or interpreter. And so this this gives this puts the power into the hands of a select few. And what's an antidote to that? In in my opinion, an open source place where people see different interpretations to the text because they do exist. You know, there's there's lots of interpretations, but in the end. You know, he he who has the most marketing dollars, you know, their view is going to win. That's the way it works. That's the way it works no matter what. It's not about religion. It's just about, you know, who gets their idea out the most. Mm-hmm. You know, so some people, you know, and, and that's and that's what it's about. So, you know, to put things in perspective, you know, had, you know, had the Catholic Church been sitting on, you know, a vital resource 
in the 14th century that you know that they could make a lot of money off of they probably could have beaten england and the church of england right so you know because they could yeah. market their idea more better and faster and so it, it comes down to kind of money meeting a certain kind of mindset it's so interesting because we've spoken to other people who have spoken about the fact that social media and the kinds of communications platforms that we use today really create incentives for the most extreme points of view because those are the things that get liked the most and get shared the most and sort of get the most attention on those platforms. So I guess this raises the question about how do you get those more positive messages to be as compelling and as competitive when it comes to, you know, getting that kind of attention and really rising up on people's radar screens and I think one way is to create cognitive dissonance. So, for example, if there was some kind of algorithm in Twitter that every time somebody looked for, you know, something terrible with to do with religion, that all of a sudden something positive also pops up. You know, so you have kind of both sides. Every time you look for an article about, you know, or look for a video, you know, from ISIS, you know, from from people who who they you can tell they're looking to, you know, be recruited or whatever. If there's a way for something else to pop up too, because I think cognitive dissonance can go a long way towards you know, you know, changing people's minds when they see things in perspective. Yeah, you've talked about, I remember hearing you say before that you were always very inquisitive. And one of the things that, you know, opened your mind was just this ability and desire to ask questions and to find the answers. So it's sort of the same ideas, introducing questions in people's minds. So they at least, you know, search for different kinds of interpretations or different answers. Yeah, and and yeah, I mean, and and all, and also like the 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 really you know interpretations, you know, in the end, you know, when I grew up, you know, the the way Islam was presented, I wasn't interested, you know, to be, and I and I say this candidly, you know, because it was shown to me as black and white, and I don't do black and white. I mean, I end up creating superheroes, you know. I I mean, I just don't <laughs> do black and white. And 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 it wasn't until I realized that there was a gray area within Islam, uh, and I had to and I had to learn that from an imam who was doing his PhD at Harvard. You know, so it was then, like, huh, I can I can be a Muslim and not have to do this stuff or 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 hear or believe in this other stuff, you know. And so and and this kind of you know you know and and this kind of you know feeds back into how I raise my kids. So you know it wouldn't it wouldn't be uncommon in the conversation between me and me and one of my kids for them to come home and say, hey, Dad, you know, I think J.K. Rowling wrote today's religion class, the very Harry Potter, you know. So so you know and and I and I try to instill that in them to be respectful of the religion. But to understand that the, that there are many interpretations, and to be respectful of all religions, and just because the teacher happens to say so, doesn't mean that it's right. It's right for the exam, but to differentiate between what's right for the exam, and what's right in life, and so it's, you know, it's it's a it's a lesson they need to learn really early on. And and uh, you know, I had to figure it out on my own. Uh, I had to get kicked out of class many times, <laughs> but but I figured it out. And they unfortunately you know, have not been kicked out of class. So. Dr. Almutawa, is there anything else that you think our listeners need to understand about violent extremism and why it comes about, and more importantly, how to counter it? You know, there's a tendency to kind of, whenever violent extremism happens, especially the last few times, whether it's Charlie Hebdo or or the, you know the, the 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 guy in France with the the the, the, the niece who who you know used the truck or or um, uh, the guy that blew himself up in Kuwait or in Saudi, you know, people. The one th- there's one thing in common, which is their religion. 
but there's other things in common, like you know, former drug addicts or current drug addicts. The guy who blew himself up in Kuwait was actually high on crystal meth. You know, these guys, you know, you know, gangster, jail. I mean, criminals in the end. Um, so, so the thing is, you know, wh- you know, how we tell the story is going to go a long way towards who we inspire to do the same. And so. You know, when we, you know, if you tell a kid enough times that they're stupid, they're going to grow up believing they're stupid. And if you tell them enough times they're they're a terrorist, they're going to believe that. And the media reflects that. And the way we tell the story is this is Islam. Then it's going to be Islam for some people. But we need to kind of sit back and think. You know, who's the common common enemy here? Is it the drug taking uh, addict, ex-con, violent guy who's doing this for God knows what reason? Or are we going to blame religion? Because religion you know, has a lot of people who believe in it. And and this is not what people's typical behavior is. You know, and so this is very, you know, it's, it's very important to get to the core of it. So, you know, why people do what they do, I don't know. I mean, I know there was this one story a few years ago, I remember reading that there were two people who, I think it was the U.S. military, foiled their suicide attack in Iraq. Um, they both had downs, right? So they didn't, they didn't, they didn't dream that up. They didn't put the bombs on themselves. Somebody... Somebody probably paid their parents, told them, you know, they'll go to heaven and you'll get money. And, you know, so there's a lot of manipulation happening there. But this is, it's political and it's, and it's terrible, but it's not religion. And it's very important to kind of, to kind of really, uh, because when we say it's religion, then it's us and them. And then we create, and that's what they want. You know, and at least for me, that's not what they're going to get. Right. I want to thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. This has really been a fascinating conversation and i'm sure our podcast listeners um will agree inshallah thank you so much for the opportunity thank you so much